Bible Worm, Bible Worm, reading the Bible with Bible Worm. Welcome to Bible Worm, getting to the core of the biblical text. I'm Dr. Amy Robertson, Director of Lifelong Learning at Congregation Or Hadash in Sandy Springs, Georgia. And I'm Dr. Robert Williamson, Professor of Religious Studies at Hendricks College and Theologian-in-Residence of Canvas Community in Little Rock. We're here every week to discuss the biblical text, both as biblical scholars and as people of faith, one Jewish and one Christian. This week, we read three sections from the book of Isaiah, chapter 36, verses 1 through 3 and 13 through 20, chapter 37, verses 1 through 7, and then we go all the way back to chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. This is a set of texts that calls us to sit with questions about the power of rhetoric to confuse, mislead, and exhaust us in times of fear and conflict. How can we preserve our energy for the proverbial moment of birth when the stakes could not be higher? What would the world be like if political struggle and violence could be taken off the table? What could we turn our attention to instead? Thanks for joining us. Hey, Bobby, what's up? Hey, Amy, there is not much up. That's actually that total lie. (laughs) (laughs) It's mid-semester in Collegeville. You know how it is, like between now and the end of the semester. It's just constant grading things and stuff like that. But in the great scheme of life, it is good. Good, good, I guess. I'll take that. Good and busy with the regular stuff. Yeah, it's good to be busy. It's good to be busy. How are you? I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm So we're reading Isaiah today, as you know, and I'm contemplating why nobody calls him Yeshayahu because that's so much fun to say. Yeshayahu is very fun to say. Yep. No, it is interesting that like, yeah, like Naaman, we were not Amon. There's lots uh-huh. of ones that we we say. Yes, there's some prophets Hebrew, that I but. or characters that I would say their name in a sort of more Hebrew yeah. way, um, but not Isaiah. I don't. I'm not Isaiah. I just don't. I say Isaiah. I feel like Isaiah is a very nice. Like it just has a nice sound to it. Has a nice Yishiahu, sound. Yeah. Less. I mean, just less so. Yeah. That. Yeah. No. Yeah. It doesn't roll off the tongue. Yeah. Like Isaiah does. Yeah, so, yay, we're reading Isaiah. We're reading Isaiah, it's true. We have a couple of different chunks of text today. So most of them, th- okay, there are four chunks of text. Three of them are in chapters 36 and 37. Yeah. And then the very last one, they have us thrown all the way back to chapter two. Right. The first, so, so the narrative lectionary suggests that we read the one from chapter two last. The narrative lectionary is doing some stuff this week. <laughs> like, <laughs> <laughs> so clearly have a trajectory. With the narrative lectionary. <laughs> yeah. They clearly have something going on about how these texts fit together. Yeah. So 36, then 37, and then two. Mm-hmm. We'll see what we can figure yeah. out about that. Let's do it. Ordinarily, I would say, what context do we need? And maybe I still should ask that question, although this first text gives us a little bit of historical information. Do you want to offer context first or should we read this first section and then do that? Well, after? I think it's maybe worth just saying, cause it does connect to last week's podcast and I, and uh, mm-hmm, Micah mm-hmm. 
And we yeah. were talking about the sort of mid to late 8th century and all the things happening with Assyria. And that's what we get here in this text in Isaiah 36 and 37 is a fairly specific where, I mean, we're in the year 701 is yeah. <laughs> I think, I think when we are. Very specific. We're in Hez- King Hezekiah's reign and the Assyrian uh, king Sennacherib is coming against Judah, Jerusalem, because they have withheld tribute and Assyria was sort of marching all through the region and causing all sorts of havoc. And here now in this text gets to gets to Jerusalem. And so that's what we're going to read about today. So this is in that period of imperial aggression. And uh, what do we do as people of Judah to withstand or not or submit or what do we do? This is all in that in that uh, world. Yeah. The other thing that's interesting is that this text is also found in 2 Kings 18 and 19, almost word for word, the same. Each text adds its own little kind of additions and, you know, some adjustments. Nobody's really clear about which one. There's people argue that the 2 Kings text is original and this one has copied it. And other people argue that this one is original and 2 Kings copied it. I I don't really know. Interesting. But it is interesting that this text, and Isaiah is a character in the text. And so it it makes yeah. sense that it shows up here as well as as there. But anyway, so this is one of the texts that occurs twice in the Bible. That's that's really interesting. Okay, we could do a whole episode on that, but we won't. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, great. So, so I'm going to dive into this first section. It is Isaiah chapter 36, just verses 1 through 3. And then we'll see what other comment we want to offer on that. Great. So I'm reading from the NJPS. In the 14th year of King Hezekiah, King Sennacherib of Assyria marched against all the fortified towns of Judah and seized them. From Lachish, the king of Assyria sent the Rab Shakeh with a large force to King Hezekiah in Jerusalem. The Rab Shakeh took up a position near the conduit of the upper pool by the road of the fuller's field. And Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, who is in charge of the palace, Shebna, the scribe, and Joah, son of Asaph, the recorder, went out to him. Ooh, that was a mouthful, Bobby. <laughs> it was a mouthful. I love that you say Rav Shakeh, because I say Rav Shaka, which always reminds me of Shaka Khan. And I'm like, this guy is kind of funky. <laughs> you know, Rav Shaka doing his thing. <laughs> <laughs> I think just the fact that you have a way that you say his name indicates a kind of familiarity. <laughs> oh yeah. You got to know how to character. say a way of I saying mean, Rob Shaka. Yeah. Yeah, I don't I don't have a way of saying it. I just made one up. Yeah. I mean it totally works. I think it's probably actually fairly accurate. Rob Shaka maybe is uh, a little funky. It is. Well, we like a little funky. So I I, I remember from our conversation on Micah that you were talking about Lachish. That actually, like, yeah. I mean, I never know we were talking about King Hezekiah also, but that that placement in particular like popped out at me because you had just been teaching us. Now, is this, tell me if this is correct, because we were talking about where Micah was relative to Jerusalem. Yeah. And we said that Micah was, you know, outside Jerusalem in this sort of like agricultural area. And I think we said, I think you said that was near Lachish. Yeah. So Micah was from Moresheth, which is close to Lachish. I don't know the exact geography, but yeah, we're southwest of Jerusalem, about 20 or 30 miles. 
in the sort of flatland near, like sort of headed over toward the Mediterranean. Mm-hmm. And so if you were going to invade this region, you would come down sort of by the sea that way. Jerusalem is sort of offset up in the hills and it's harder to get yeah. to. So yeah. this is this is exactly what I was talking about. Like this is what armies do when they come in as they, they go through this region around yeah. here. Yes, right. This lower area that's more vulnerable. And, you know, as exactly as you were talking about in our last episode, that all these decisions that come from the capital cities can kind of throw these other places under the bus. That's right. That's exactly right. <laughs> you know, yeah. because it's that it, those are the ones that are going to get invaded first. Yeah. So has there been an invasion of Lachish at this point? Like, are they walking through? Or do you have a sense of, like— have have they been taken over or is they're just like military person walking through en route to Jerusalem to try to Oh that's interesting because it's not really said it's not really said here is it No Lachish has been military militarily destroyed at this point Oh uh, yeah it's it's bad <laughs> So yeah that little line is kind of undersold in this text uh, Sennacherib marched against all of Judah's fortified cities and captured them and then he sent some people from Lachish No the uh Lachish okay. the destruction of Lachish is actually was so brutal that the Assyrian king Sennacherib put up reliefs of the destruction of Lachish on his palace mm. walls so that everybody who came to for an audience with him in Assyria would be like, oh my gosh, look what that guy did to that place. Hope he doesn't oh, do wow. that to our place. So yeah, so it was a pretty brutal destruction that's taken place here of Lachish. And then from there, the general who has just destroyed the yeah. city in the Shephela instead of marching against Jerusalem, is sending an envoy to Jerusalem to try to get them to uh, surrender. Wow. That's really helpful context to yeah. flesh this out. So Jerusalem should be pretty scared. Jerusalem should be pretty scared. And it, the part that, I can't remember if it occurs in the part that we're reading of this text, because we're, we're going to kind of move around a little bit, but mm-hmm. it seems like, I mean, what has happened historically and what the biblical text describes is, Sennacherib's just been like marching west and all of these little kingdoms over here around Israel and Judah have been rebelling against the Assyrians. And this was the anti-Assyrian or uh, Syro-Palestinian anti-Assyrian coalition that John Hayes used to talk about. It's a version of that. And so uh, Sennacherib has just been marching through like destroying everyone. And so it has been a brutal march westward for him. And but instead of going against Jerusalem, he destroys Lachish and then sends people. So yeah, the people in Jerusalem have been watching what's happening first to all the foreign people and then mm-hmm. now to their own city, Lachish. And so they mm-hmm. should be, very much should be quaking in their in their boots at this point. Yeah. You've talked us through some of the other context that's happening here. You talked us through the fact that this is already, this is also included in Second Kings. Mm-hmm. Is there anything else I mean, I think the, the other thing that sort of stands out to me, maybe it's kind of silly. I think of Isaiah as poetry. Yeah. And like most of the book is formatted yeah. as poetry on the page. Yeah. And when I opened my Tanakh today to see this, it looks like I'm reading Kings. Like, exactly right. <laughs> you know, yeah. like these are paragraphs yeah. and it was, you know, we had this whole conversation last time about what it is to read poetry and what it is to read prose and how we sort of shift into different modes. I don't know. Is is your text also laid out as as prose here? Yeah, I, I think this is fairly clearly prose. Yeah. I think yeah. that's right. And, you know, it, it's not—Isaiah is a character in this text. 
And so I think these are two pretty good arguments that maybe this text did not originally occur in the book of Isaiah itself. Like it's not written by the hand of the prophet. Maybe it was written by someone else for the book of Isaiah, or maybe it was written by someone else for the book of Kings. But I think it's fairly clearly not the same thing that we've been reading in the first part of the book of Isaiah. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think, I think that sounds right. The other thing that may be relevant in this section, I don't, I don't really know, but this, the way they set the scene where the commander comes and stands by the upper pool on the road mm-hmm. to, how was your, the, how was, what was your translation of verse two? The CEB is a little weird. Verse two, from Lachish, the king of Assyria sent the Rab Shaketh with a large force to King Hezekiah in Jerusalem. The Rab Shaketh took up a position near the conduit of the upper pool by the road of the Fuller's Field. Yeah, that, the uh, CEB says the road where the clothes are washed, <laughs> which is like what the Fuller's Field is, I guess, but it just doesn't sound quite, quite the same. Uh, if an attentive reader of Isaiah will recognize that the scene is the same setting as a passage earlier in Isaiah in chapter seven, where Isaiah, the prophet goes to meet Hezekiah's father, Ahaz, who is also concerned about what to do with Assyria. And Isaiah mm-hmm. says to Ahaz, hold the course or there will be no course to hold. And the meaning of which is something like be loyal to God and don't like, don't give it, don't give in. Yeah. And so I don't know whether that's intended or not, but I think there, there's an interesting echo where the prophet and the king, king, the previous king had a conversation about that. And then now here's the Assyrian general standing where the prophet was. And here's the king's like retinue standing where the king had been earlier. It's just sort of a, it's an interesting kind of retelling of the same basic story. Yeah, that is interesting. Okay. Great. So let's skip down a few verses with the narrative lectionary, which picks up again, still in chapter 36, but at verse 13. Although verse 12 is much more colorful. We'll start at 13 with the narrative <laughs> lectionary. And the Rab Shakes stood and called out in a loud voice in Judean, Hear the words of the great king, the king of Assyria. Thus said the king, Don't let Hezekiah deceive you, for he will not be able to save you. Don't let Hezekiah make you rely on the Lord, saying, The Lord will surely save us. This city will not fall into the hands of Assyria. Don't listen to Hezekiah, for thus said the king of Assyria, Make your peace with me and come out to me, so that you may all eat from your vines and your fig trees and drink water from your cisterns, until I come and take you to a land like your own, a land of bread and wine, of grain fields and vineyards. Beware of letting Hezekiah mislead you by saying, the Lord will save us. Did any of the gods of other nations save his land from the king of Assyria? Where were the gods of Hamath and Arpad? Where were the gods of Sepharvim? And did they save Samaria from me? Which among all the gods of these countries saved their countries from me, that the Lord should save Jerusalem from me? This is so striking to me just in the, like the, 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 the turns of phrase are so mm-hmm. much like something a prophet would say. Yes. Speaking on behalf of yeah. God. Yeah. But now we're speaking on behalf of a human leader. Yeah. I mean, that's so, it's so interesting. 
And that's exactly right. And also just the fact that the field commander, the Rav Shaka, Rav Shaka, by the way, just means the like the great cupbearer or something like that. It's mm. it's a position in the mm. Assyrian court. It's like the most important. It's like the king's right-hand guy, basically. So he's doing that. He's speaking language that is familiar from Hebrew prophets. And also he's speaking in, this said Judean, but he's speaking Hebrew. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so he's come and he's speaking the language of mm-hmm. the people so that the people can hear. Like, yes. it's just such a brilliant uh, move. Yes. The the couple verses before this that are not included, but the, the leaders of the Israelite people say, speak to us in Aramaic. We understand. Don't speak Hebrew. Right. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah. Because let's... we don't want these guys sitting here to understand what you're saying. And he says... Those are exactly the guys who need to yeah. understand what I'm saying because they're the ones who are going to be, you know, it, it, just like Lachish is more vulnerable than Jerusalem, like these random dudes are more vulnerable, yeah. you know, than the higher ups in the government. And they need to know yeah. what's what's the offer on the table here. Right. Yeah. And what's going to happen if you don't take the offer. That's yeah. That's exactly right. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, yeah, strategic. Smart. The other thing I wondered about the way that he is making a case, I don't know quite how to articulate this, but it's, it is very much not a a case that's based in like, I don't know, a a belief system or I don't know. It's, it's, it's very like, look, people, this doesn't have to be so hard. Yeah. You know, you can stay in your own land for a while. And then, yes, I'm going to move you to a different land. But there's still going to be, you know, food sources and water. And it's going to be okay. Yeah. I don't know. It doesn't doesn't engage in these sort of, like, higher-level arguments about that, like, Isaiah would want them thinking about. Right. You know, like, what is it? What does it mean to have sovereignty as a people, or what does it mean to be the people of God, or what does it mean to, you know, whatever? Like, none of that is really in this argument. Yeah, no, that's it's very right. Practical. It is very practical, and it uses the biblical language about eating from your own vine and drinking from your own water. And then the land that I'm going to deport you to is like it's going to be just like your land. So I'm I'm going to take you away to someplace else, but it'll be a great place too. Yeah, so yeah. really soft selling the kind of like conquering and deportation here by way of talking about it in terms that they already understand from their own tradition. I mean, this presumably has been pretty brutal and there's language in this previous part about eating your own dung and drinking your own urine and mm-hmm. like like ancient warfare was brutal and having your city besieged is brutal. And so it would be better, you know, just to surrender and come out in some sense, and be able to be resettled some, somewhere else. Like, there's an argument to be made there. The Rav Shaka knows that the, the king's not going to go for that, but the people maybe are going are gonna to go for it. Yeah. It's interesting because the, the Rav Shaka is anticipating, don't listen to, the, uh, to the, don't listen to Hezekiah when he says, the Lord will certainly rescue us. Mm-hmm. And so he's already sort of like, this is what Hezekiah is about to say. And like, that is not going to be turn out to be true, right? That's not going to work. And that's what Isaiah had said to King Ahaz earlier in Isaiah 7. The, the previous time that this had happened was, let's God's going to take care of us. And in fact, God did take care of them. And so it's kind of this interesting, like, 
the message of Isaiah to Ahaz years earlier in Isaiah chapter 7 was stand firm and God will sort this thing out. And in that instance, the northern kingdom did get destroyed in 722, but Jerusalem and the southern kingdom did not get destroyed. And the belief was, well, because God protected us. Mm-hmm. And so this time when the Assyrians come, they say, like, Hezekiah is going to try to tell you God's going to protect you, but God's not going to protect you. So they're mm-hmm. trying to cut off the theological argument right there at the beginning, too. Yeah, because with, I mean, without the theological argument, it's, <laughs> they need the theological argument. Because Sennacherib's had this, you know, tremendously successful campaign. Yeah. No, that's right. And then that list down in verse 19, or starting Mm -hmm. in verse 18, did Mm -hmm. any of the other gods save their lands? Like, no. Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? Where are the gods of Sepharvaim? And did they rescue Samaria from my power? And that's getting real close to home because the God of Israel, of course, is also the God of Samaria. And so I've already defeated your God once he seems to be saying. And so how do you think your God's going to stand in my way again? So wait, let me make sure I'm understanding you. When that last part of verse 19, mm. did the gods of Samaria, did that, sorry. Yes. Did the gods save Samaria from me? That's, that's a direct reference to the God of Israel. Well, I mean, I guess it's not obviously said there, but it's, it no, I understand what you're saying. It had, I guess, because the language was sort of, it buries the lead a little bit. It does bury the lead a little (laughs) bit. So you would either have to argue that Samaria was worshiping some other gods, or you would have to say Samaria was worshiping the same god you worship, people of Judah, and look what happened to them. I mean, what happened to Samaria was they got destroyed and deported like 20 years earlier. Right. Uh, and 20 years is not that long. Like it, no. Sometimes it sort of seems like, oh, these are two totally different historical periods. But if you think about what was going on 20 years ago, like it's really, we're still pretty close. And so the memory has got to be there. So I think that's how I would read it, is none of the gods have been able to stand in, in my way, including the God of Samaria, which is the same God that you worship. So why would you think that God, your God could save you? Yeah. I know this isn't, it's kind of cheating because it's the line right after the narrative lectionary ends, but it says that they didn't answer these Mm -hmm. questions because the king had said, don't answer him. Mm -hmm. Like maybe the king hadn't even heard the questions, but just said, don't answer him. Mm -hmm. And I was really struck by that because I was thinking about like the nature of these questions and why why they shouldn't be answered. And just the way in which the questions like, are, I guess, misleading or a distraction in some way because I'll put aside Samaria for a minute, but the question of whether any of the other gods saved any of the other lands from Sennacherib, I guess that Hezekiah would want to make the case that that's not relevant. Exactly. And even with Samaria, maybe would want to say that's not relevant because either Samaria had gone so far astray at that point or, you know, God's Isaiah really is attached to this idea that that God is especially present in Zion, Jerusalem. Right. So I guess sometimes I, I don't know. I'm just struck by the by the fact that they were specifically told, "Don't answer him." Yeah. Like don't don't get caught in this conversation because sometimes people just ask the wrong question, and so the answer will be what what the asker wanted it to be. Right. But it doesn't actually answer the question. The big, the big question, it takes you in the wrong direction. 
I like that a lot. And it goes with the, like, don't speak in Hebrew, please. There is mm-hmm. a sense here in which they know that not only are the Assyrians masters of military power, but they are masters of propaganda. And if you say things, like if you try yeah. to respond to them, you are going to get caught and the people are listening and you're going to lose the people. And if you lose the people, yeah. then what do you have left? So like, don't say anything like seems like a little bit like an extreme reaction, like just hear what they say and then like scurry away. But it turns out, I think, to be the, the right yeah, response. You'll get ensnarled in exactly. something. Yeah. One interesting thing that's also happening here in the section that this narrative lectionary did not have us read, when the when Rav Shaka was just talking to the king, or sorry, mm-hmm. to the king's men, back in verse 10, he has he said, What's more, do you do you think I've marched against this place to destroy it without the Lord's support? It was the Lord who told me, march against this land and destroy it. So originally, the Rav Shaka has been saying, your God, the God of Jerusalem, is trying to punish you. And that's why I have all this power. And that's why mm-hmm. I can do it. So how could, why is that God going to save you if that God's the one who's given me my power in the first place? Yeah. That's a really different argument. It's a, <laughs> it is. It's a pretty persuasive argument if, in fact, God is punishing them. You know, yeah. like if that is the case. And you know that that theology works in the Hebrew Bible in all kinds yeah. of ways. Like it's a totally reasonable thing to say. Here, the Rav Shaka shifts to saying the God of Israel could not stop me uh, yeah. if that God wanted to stop me. I think that was a big mistake <laughs> that the that the that Rav Shaka made there or the king, whoever, the king of Assyria, whoever's making this claim from saying like, I'm on... I am God's puppet to saying like, I'm more powerful than God. I feel Mm. like, man, when you hear that, like when you like imagine God, like hearing the king say that, like, excuse me, what What have you just said? Like, I really think in his own sort of clever, like trying to manipulate language, he made a mistake right there to say, I'm more powerful than than God. And so the story kind of like, as we'll see, it sort of unravels from there. You think it's him. a mistake because it would have angered God or a mistake because the people would have been more likely to believe the argument that he fed to the king? Oh, well, maybe both of those. I was making the first case that yeah. you don't want to say that about God when when yeah. God is listening. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. You could also read it as this was all propaganda in the first place. And so he just made the one argument and then he made the other. And that's like steeled the resolve. Because if you say, look, your God is mad at you and I'm just punishing you on your God's behalf, like that kind of makes you like wilty and like, oh, we are, yeah. we are terrible. But if yeah. you say your God is a weakling, then that kind of makes you want to fight, you know? So, yeah. So maybe it is both of those. It's a theological mistake and maybe also it's a rhetorical mistake. A strategic one, yeah. You know, Bobby, I'm thinking to what you were saying just a minute ago about, you know, that the fall of Samaria was not so long ago, 20 yeah, years or 20 so years. ago. And so they have that recent memory and whatever sort of fear is attached to it. And I'm thinking about like comparing that to how long ago there was some like big sort of salvific power of God displayed. Oh, yeah. Like it's been a minute. Yeah. And I don't know. It just it just really sort of drives home to me, first of all, the importance of that we talk about all the time, but trying to make memories of those big salvific events feel real to new generations of people. 
because they're going to come up against things yeah. like this where you don't no one has to use their imagination. <laughs> That's exactly <laughs> you know, right. they they saw it happen themselves 20 years ago. Because I mean, it's the people are in a really are in a really hard position here. Yeah. No, when you were saying like when was the last time that God had done something, I went straight to the Exodus. And I mean, I'm sure that God has done things in the meantime, but that was the that's the one that's like the big flashy, like yeah. very obvious miracle, destruction of a major military power. And since then, God's God's miracles on Israel's behalf have been, I mean, important, like sustaining their life in the wilderness and like giving mm-hmm. giving them a land to live in and like protecting the border. But they're but they're just things that are like the making daily life possible, yeah. <laughs> which is like I'm a miracle. But when you're living a life like that, you don't think of it that way. And so yeah. I, I think that I think that's exactly right. Is they don't remember, even though God has been sort of taking care of them presumably this whole time. Maybe they don't remember. They've taken it for granted. Yeah, Amy. The other resonance that's in here, and this came up in the Bible Worm Collaborative, is that line we talked about it earlier. But in verse sixteen. You will eat from your own vine and fig tree and drink from water from your own well. There's an echo there of Joshua 24, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. where Joshua talks to the people about how now they're living in a land and they're living in houses they didn't build and they're eating from fields that they didn't plant. And but this is sort of, I don't know, like it's the same idea, but there's a sense of threat about it right here where. I don't quite know. Like, it just seems like it's playing with that same imagery of, remember when you possessed this land? Maybe it's now saying, like, now I have the power to possess your land. I don't know. Do you, do you hear a resonance there? I definitely hear a resonance there. And and what I noticed, when I first read it, I was just sort of thinking about the kinds of attachments that we have to, not just to our our safety. Of course, we have attachment to our safety and the fact that we have food to eat and things to drink, but also the sense of home that comes when it's our own, our own. But when you just read it or referenced Joshua 24, I was thinking about how Joshua 24 specifically says like cisterns that you didn't build and, you know, plants that you didn't plant, but here they've become your own. Yeah. And I wonder if, I wonder if that's intentional on behalf, Um, Like, I wonder if that's, you know, God will say these things are not really yours, but I'll say they are yours. Mm. You know, like if it's sort of, again, playing, like manipulating the human spirit a little bit to think that they do possess these things, although he's about to take them. So maybe not. I don't know. I mean, it's so interesting, the move, because, yeah, the very next thing he says is, oh, by the way, I'm going to deport you. But that's going to be okay too. But it's going to be a land of grain and wine and bread and vineyards. Like it's gonna, it sounds like a land flowing with milk and honey. It's going to be just like your place. And there, there really is the sense in which the conquester thinks like any old place, like you could go anywhere. And there is a sense in which the attachment to home yeah. feels very different when you're coming from the outside and saying like, I know a land that's just as good as this one. Like it'll be, it'll all be the same. But if you're the person who's getting displaced, then it feels it's very different. It's not all the same. Yeah, that's such a good way of thinking about it. The person from the outside can look at two places and say, these are roughly equivalent. Yeah. But they're not if you have that, you know, 
personal sense of home there, or if you want to think sort of from a biblical perspective about the the inherent holiness in this land, like you can't just take them off this land and put them somewhere else. Right. And yet when you hear the resonance with Joshua 24, that's what they had done to Canaanites previously. Yeah. And now it's about to be done to them as well. I don't know what, I don't know what point, if there is a point to draw out of that, but just like to notice that dynamic. Yeah. Seems important. Yeah. No, I think that's right. Hi, everyone. I'm Marie Maynard O'Connell, pastor of Park Hill Presbyterian Church in North Little Rock, Arkansas, USA. And I am a Bible Worm supporter at the Bible Study Liturgy Worm level. I had finally decided that I was ready to work with the Narrative Lectionary when the pandemic hit. And then over that summer, I realized that several of the resources I was planning to use had shuttered. I was pretty upset, but I turned to Bible Worm and quickly realized that not only could I benefit from Bobby and Amy's fantastic exegesis and Bible study, but that I had found a community as well. I appreciate not only having colleagues from across the globe to think and study with, but also to be able to share the Bible study with a small class at my church. And the liturgy has literally been a lifesaver. It's the best use of my continuing education fund yet. I hope you'll consider becoming a Bible Worm supporter too. You can join for as little as $4 a month. Just go to patreon.com backslash Bible Worm podcast for details. And now back to this week's podcast. Should we see what happens next? Let's do. Okay, so we are picking up just a couple verses down at the beginning of chapter 37, verses 1 through 7. When King Hezekiah heard this, he rent his clothes and covered himself with sackcloth and went into the house of the Lord. He also sent Eliakim, who was in charge of the palace, Shebna the scribe, and the senior prophets covered with sackcloth to the prophet Isaiah, son of Amoz. They said to him, Thus said Hezekiah, This day is a day of distress, of chastisement, and of disgrace. The babes have reached the birth stool, but the strength to give birth is lacking. Perhaps the Lord your God will take note of the words of Rabshakeh, whom his owner, the king of Assyria, has sent to blaspheme the living God, and will mete out judgment for the words that the Lord your God has heard, if you will offer up prayer for the surviving remnant. When King Hezekiah's ministers came to Isaiah, Isaiah said to them, Tell your master as follows, Thus said the Lord, Do not be frightened by the words of the blasphemy against me that you have heard from the minions of the king of Assyria. I will delude him. He will hear a rumor and return to his land, and I will make him fall by the sword in his land. That's so interesting. That is, yes, that's very interesting. Yes. Okay, just to sort of continue the strand of the conversation we've been having the last couple of episodes about the different kinds of prophets or different kinds of prophecy that were happening in Israel, the king is sending people to Isaiah. Right. So that seems like he's kind of like in the the center, right? He's one of the central prophets. I think that's right. I think that's absolutely right. The, you know, Isaiah has had a little bit of a tense relationship with, particularly with Ahaz, uh, Hezekiah's father, a little bit with Hezekiah, but it's been a tense relationship within the, like, he's the advisor. He's the official prophet, Mm -hmm. I think, of the king. And being a prophet is sometimes 
you know, you got to say some things that are hard and sometimes you get to say some things that are supportive. But Isaiah is very much a part of the structure and not like a Micah who's out at the edge or Elisha who's out at the edge. Mm-hmm. But he's right there in the, in the administrative center. So to, to stay with that sort of question of Isaiah's relationship with the king or with this whole situation, do you make anything out of the fact that in verse 4, they say, perhaps the Lord your God will take note? Why would they say your God? Yeah, you want them to say the Lord our God? I do want them to say that. <laughs> That's yeah. what I want. Yeah. yeah. I mean, the way that I first read it was, probably not very profound, which is just to say that the prophet seems to have some sort of special connection. I mean, that is the nature of being a prophet. Yeah. And so acknowledging that Isaiah is the one who has that relationship and they are not the one. But then they're also speaking on behalf of the king, right? So mm-hmm. uh, they said to him, Hezekiah says this. And so it's really Hezekiah saying, perhaps the Lord, your God. And that does kind of bother you that he should have said the Lord our God, the Lord my God. I don't know. Maybe there's more there than I see. No, I mean, maybe there's not. The only thing that I can think is that it, like, as a reader, it adds a certain, like, edge to it. Like, when I tell my daughter her dog is outside barking, like, (laughs) (laughs) you know, like, go, you know, you need to make your dog do something. Yes. Yeah. But I don't, so I guess the reason I ask is if that's true, then, for me, there's this sort of sense of like, I don't know, frustration in there. Like yeah. God should already have been, res- we shouldn't be in this, we sh- things should not even have gone this far. Yeah. What is happening? Yeah. But that might be an overread. No, I mean, I think that's not not unreasonable way of reading it. And, you know, we're in the sort of period where the Deuteronomistic theology is pretty strong. And and the Rav Shaka has just made the case, which we did not didn't read, but it's there that God is punishing, God is using Assyria to punish Hezekiah and his people for having done wrong. And so Mm -hmm. maybe Hezekiah is just acknowledging, like, maybe I am a wrongdoer. Maybe God's not on my side anymore, but he's your God, so Mm -hmm. you can go and talk to him. Mm -hmm. Then you end up in the same place without saying Hezekiah has sort of abandoned God, but maybe Hezekiah is afraid that God has rejected him. That's so interesting because the other thing that's so striking to me ties back to something you were saying earlier about the fact that ultimately they decide to go to use like blasphemy as a <laughs> yeah as an approach instead of saying we're tools of your god saying we're actually stronger than your god and that Hezekiah is then using that to try to like it's yes. just so surprising to me that Hezekiah is not like save us we yeah. are your people. Yeah. It's more like did you hear what that guy said about you? <laughs> yeah. You know and yeah, I wonder if there is that sort of sense of not not really being sure what your standing is at that moment. And so looking for all the other ways you can get in. Maybe we can get in through Isaiah. Yeah. Maybe we can get in through this other guy's worse than we are. No, I like that. And I mean, if you read it that way, then what Hezekiah has done is he's accepted the original premise that God is punishing him. Mm. But he's pointing out the overstep that I was pointing out a minute ago mm-hmm. that he he just shifted from saying he's punishing us on God's behalf to saying he is stronger than God. And so maybe there's, maybe there's our opening. So he's, he's ex- sort of accepted the punishment angle, but he said, oh no, this guy's done something different. There's our way in. 
And I mean, it turns out like it works. Like that's exactly, that's exactly what God needed, I think. So interesting. Amy, I've been looking at this line in verse three. It is as if children are ready to be born, but there's no strength to see it through. Mm-hmm. And you have been talking this fall quite a bit in a number of these texts about the birth of children and the birth of the, of the people. Mm. We were talking about it last week in Micah. We were talking about it back in the Red Sea story. Yeah, I don't know if there's a connection that we want to make there about now here's a birth that's ready to happen, but it seems everyone's too exhausted to follow through. Do you see a connection? I mean, I don't, I see a connection in my own head. I don't know. I don't, I, I don't know how much there's like a real connection in the proverbial mind of the text, but at the very least, what was so powerful to me in seeing like a birth metaphor in the Red Sea story is that it's not that it's not, it's terrifying and it's painful and it's legitimately dangerous. Yeah. And I feel like sometimes birth gets a little uh, prettied up (laughs) when we, you know, when we picture like new birth, like it's all good and it's all great. But like that moment right before, the actual birth or the moment of the birth is is terrifying. And so I think, so I like it that here it is, it's going back to the birthing metaphor, which I'm sure, you know, I as a modern person have very, my only experiences with births have been the ones that I have given. Right. That verb came out funny, but (laughs) (laughs) I mean, my own children. And in the ancient world, people presumably had more, more intimate familiarity with what it actually looked like for someone to give birth. But I love that the metaphor here, I don't know how much it's really talking about we're ready to emerge into this new chapter of peoplehood. Maybe that's in there too. Or maybe it's focused much more on the, there is so much pressure building up, you know, behind behind something. Like something's got to happen but we can't, uh, we can't make it go the way it needs to go. Like we don't, we don't, we can't meet that yeah. force in a way that's going to see this through properly. Do you think there that there is in this metaphor, like actually imagining the other side of the birth, like some kind of new beginning, or that it's just getting to the danger part of it? No, I really love seeing the like. To me, that metaphor sits here awkwardly. Yeah, today is a day of distress, punishment, and humiliation. Okay, that's all bad. Yeah. It's as if children are ready to be born. That seems good, but there's no strength to see it through. And so like, I just don't really quite even understand exactly what Hezekiah is trying to do with that metaphor as a way of talking about humiliation, punishment, and distress. Yeah. But I, I feel like what you're saying makes sense to me, that there, like, there is something good that's waiting to come into the world. I don't think we've been talking about it exactly in this text yet. But here it is, and then but but we're exhausted. Like we can't do the thing necessary. So, right. I really like your reading of it. Is there is like the people are ready for a new chapter, and but they I mean they've been they've been brutalized and they're scared and they're exhausted and they just they can't do it. And so this so maybe this is this is the end of the line. And yes, and this is the end of the line. Like if the alternative at the moment of birth is not just, if you don't have the strength, you don't give birth. It's everybody dies. Right. 
or you give birth. Like (laughs) there's no, you know, like there's no, yeah. You you can't stick with the status quo. The status quo is no longer there. That's really helpful because I imagine that they had that experience quite commonly too, like in their minds where, you know, like for me, it was like, well, okay, if something happens, then like we'll do an emergency C-section. And like that's scary too, but in a different sort of a way. And so, no, I think that's helpful. Like here's this moment of possibility and the alternative is, is that everybody dies and left to our own devices at this point, there's, there's no future here. Yeah. The other thing that popped into my head when I was reading this is like kind of lame, but from my like own experience with my first child, I remember throughout the pregnancy doing all the like, you know, birthing classes and whatever and, and really feeling like I could do it and feeling strong in my body and, you know, having an idea of how, how I wanted things to go and what choices I wanted to make and whatnot. And I just remember like being 42 weeks pregnant and like, I was like, I don't have it anymore. Like, I don't, the like, the koach, the like strength that I had 10 weeks ago, I, I don't, I don't have it. So the thought that now I have to give birth is, yeah. this is a very different yeah. equation. Um, and so just thinking about like what it would, what it is to sort of stand strong in your faith at certain yeah. moments, <laughs> as opposed to other moments, you know, after they've endured what whatever they have endured to this point and the fear that they have and how that has sort of weakened them and drawn down maybe some of their reserves of strength or their reserves of faith. They're, they're in a weaker position to do this yeah. incredibly hard thing. Yeah. That's so helpful to me in reading this next piece too, because it's, you know, and starting in verse five, Isaiah gives the response, which is, I mean, it sounds actually a lot like what Moses said to the people at the edge of the Red Sea, which was, Mm -hmm. God's heard you. You don't have to do anything. Don't be afraid of what you just heard. Here's what God's about to do. Mm -hmm. And so there is this sense in which, okay, you don't have the strength left to do this, but I can do it and I'm about to do it. And it's motivated by the insult, the mm-hmm. the words you heard, which the officers of a serious king used to insult me. Like God has gotten engaged over this sort of challenge to God's honor, which we saw all the way back in the Ten Commandments. Like, do not <laughs> do not do that to God because God can sometimes get really enraged. Yeah. And that's what happens here. Yeah, it's so interesting. It becomes, do not be frightened by the words of blasphemy against me. I mean, I think they were frightened even before the words of blasphemy. But yes, that is a really good good focal point. Don't don't believe the words of blasphemy. Exactly. Do you make anything much out of the fact that God's going to make this all go down by deluding him? It's interesting. I mean, yeah. Deluding him is... It says literally put a spirit in. So right. Maybe that's pretty different, but that he's going to hear a rumor that just seems like such an interesting and go back to his own land. Mm-hmm. Like all of that is a really, that's very specific. It is. <laughs> it is. <laughs> Though it reminds me a little bit of King Saul, you know, after he's mm-hmm. lost the favor of God and then God yes. sends a spirit and King Saul kind of loses his cool and eventually this gets is bearing. overthrown. Yeah. He does. Mm-hmm. And so I don't know why God 
chooses to operate that way sometimes with powerful people, but that's what seems to be happening here. And it, it may be a way of saying, look, you don't need to muster an army to go and fight this guy because like, there's yeah. no way you can do it, but I can do it just by sending a spirit on him. If you read on in the text, what actually ends up happening is that the angel of death comes through the camp and kills 185,000 Assyrian soldiers, and then they go back to the land, and then Sennacherib gets killed. Mm. So it does happen the way that it's said here, but also there's a lot of death yeah. in the meantime. The narrative lectionary did not give us that. Yeah, that yeah, yeah, yeah. That's very interesting. To me, the point is you don't have to do it. Yeah. I'll, I'll do it. Yeah. Yes. And this, this guy, this king, who is so incredibly confident, is going to be confused and yeah. lose his way. Yeah. And and then also die, but I feel like there's also some maybe like humiliation piece in yeah. the Yeah. Don't no, I like that. He seems unstoppable not only in his military power, but also in his use of language and his use yeah. of familiar tropes and in his theological claims about his own power. Like he just seems like he's mastered all the all the things you need to master in order to be in charge, in order yeah. to dominate. And that's going to get mixed up. I think yeah. that's right. I like that. I know we need to move on to the next section. Do you think there's any particular weight to the fact that the king will die in his own land? Like, does that have any particular resonance for you, especially as a king who mm. is talking about deporting Oh yeah, them? I mean, the, the way that I had mostly read it is he's going to leave like, he's not going to yeah. be here anymore. But there is also that element that you're, like, his own land is going to end up turning against him. And he, he gets assassinated by one of his own people. Mm. I don't quite know. I don't quite know yeah, what to do Yeah, I don't know that. if I would do, I don't know if I want to do anything more with that. This guy who thinks he can control your land can't even control his own land? I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, you could possibly, yeah, I don't know. But it is notable that God's just not like, hey, I'm going to send a spirit and then somebody's going to kill him like down there in Lachish. It's going to be like. Right, he's not just going to drop dead in the morning. Right, they're all going to go home. And then, yeah. 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 Is there anything else you want to add on this section? I don't think so. Then we are going to go all the way back to chapter two. And read a couple verses of poetry. I love. I really love these verses. Mm, yeah, these are these are good ones. Okay, so we are in chapter two, verses one through four. The word that Isaiah, son of Amoz, prophesied concerning Judah and Jerusalem. In the days to come, the mount of the Lord's house shall stand firm above the mountains and tower above the hills, and all the nations shall gaze on it with joy. And the many peoples shall go and say, Come, let us go up to the mount of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may instruct us in his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For instruction shall come forth from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Thus he will judge among the nations and arbitrate for the many peoples, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not take up sword against nation. They shall never again know war. Mm. Mm-hmm. 
That last part, nation shall not take up sword against nation. Do Christians sing that? We have a lot of different settings of those words. I'm sure that we do, but I don't have a version of it. I'm just curious. Yeah. It's like an old time favorite. I'm not a hymn. I'm not a hymnity person, really. Mm. So I don't know for sure. I imagine Terry, our liturgist, has got like 10 hymns. She's like, hey! (laughs) (laughs) Which one should we use? Yeah. 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 And you know, that's also the motto of the United Nations. I did not know that. It is. Okay. Well, that actually leads me into a very nice, or it leads me nicely into one of the questions I have about this section, which is about the the universality of this vision. Mm -hmm. How do we even ask this question? So I guess I feel both like I I love the universal draw of it Mm -hmm. and also feel slightly uncomfortable with it. Do you feel, do you, is that just me? Do you feel uncomfortable with it at all? Christians love universal things, but <laughs> tell me <laughs> tell me what makes you uncomfortable about it. Be- well, because it's universal. Like, all the people are going to come worship our God, and then yeah. everything's going to be great. Yeah. Like, it's not universal, like, in a way that feels equal. It's like everyone's going to realize we're right, and that's going to yeah. be so great. <laughs> yeah. I appreciate that that makes you uncomfortable. I, I mean, I think that is what it is saying. I think that— that has been sort of the idea ever since our very first text that we read this, not first text, but when we read the promise to Abraham in Genesis 12, maybe that was our second text this year. But the God's first promise to Abraham is, I will bless you so that through you, all the nations of the world will be blessed. And so there's been this kind of sense all along in which the blessing has been given, the Torah has been given, also that eventually that blessing will reach out beyond itself to the nations. And I think this is Isaiah's version of that. Like the culmination of that. The culmination of that. Because I feel like you could be blessed through a family or blessed through a lineage without, I don't know, this really, like they're going to they're gonna go get instructions from the God of Israel. <laughs> like yeah. this is pretty, this pretty far down the road. I mean, the word instruction there is just the word Torah. Mm -hmm. And so what I think is happening here, that actually reminds me of the conversation we just had last week in Micah. By the way, this passage also occurs in the book of Micah in chapter four. So these are, Isaiah shares the previous passage we talked about with second Kings and Mike and Isaiah shares this passage with Micah four. And so it's just interesting. Those connections. That is very interesting. Yeah. But the word instruction there in verse three is Torah. And so what I think is Isaiah is saying is God has already shown you, oh, mortal, what is good. <laughs> um, God has already given the instruction about how people should live together in peace. And it's there it is in the Torah. And so if people could just learn how to live together, then we could live in a world in which swords and warfare are no longer necessary. And so I don't, I read this. I mean, I think it probably does have in mind also that people are worshiping God. I think that's in there, but I think what, what really the point is, is God has shown in the Torah, the way people could live together. And eventually the rest of the world is going to realize, oh, that actually does make sense. And those things we talked about last week, those things make sense. 
And so if we live that way, we could actually live together. Yeah. That makes it a little less religious-y, like, we want you to worship our God. Yeah. More like, we want you to obey our religious law. My discomfort can be my discomfort. Like, (laughs) the the Tanakh is allowed to have a faith claim here. Oh, yeah, yeah, That's allowed. It's allowed. You know, I'm so curious about what you were— Okay, so I want to hear how what you were just saying might relate to this question in my mind. Yeah. In verse 4, the text imagines that God will judge among the nations, arbitrate for the many people. So, like, God is the judge. Mm. And it says, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares. Okay, first of all, let's pause. What's a plowshare? What What's happening? Well, so the CEB's translation is they will beat their swords into iron plows. Okay. So that's the way I've always read plowshare is just, like, the pointy part of the plow that, like— yeah does the digging of the soil. Some kind of agricultural tool. Exactly right. So what was once used for people to kill each other is now going to be used to help us grow food for each other. Or at least to help us grow food. Yeah, for ourselves. Yeah. (laughs) Better than killing each other. (laughs) Yeah. What, can you draw out the connection between having God as a judge and Mm. turning your sword into, you know, instruments for food production? That's such a good question. And I mean, I I don't quite know how to settle it. And my head goes in two sort of contradictory directions. So uh, one is that the one I like better is that God is a God of justice. And so nations inevitably seem to dispute with each other. But if you have a, a judge who is truly interested in justice and fairness, then God can settle those disputes in ways that the nations can recognize as true. And so there's now there's no need for fighting one another because mm-hmm. you have a mm-hmm. equitable, faithful, righteous judge. The other way mm-hmm. of reading it is that God is punishing nations and, you know, sort of deciding who's right and wrong and like making nations submit. And so then now they don't have any use for their implements of war anymore. Mm. I just don't, I don't quite know how violent the judgment that is envisioned here is. Yeah. I very much prefer the my first interpretation that yeah. Yeah. because God is equitable and fair, everyone recognizes that God can settle disputes in ways that don't require warfare. Mm-hmm. What do you do with that line? I think I read it somewhere in between your two readings that, yes, God is equitable and fair for sure. And regardless of whether people recognize God's decisions as equitable and fair, Fair. In this vision, at least in my mind, it's indisputed that God's in charge for all yeah. of these people. And right. so there's no need to jockey for power anymore. Right. Like God makes the decisions, the decisions are made. And, and it does free up this space just sort of immediately for like, just go, just attend to the daily needs of your family and your community. Like right. go back to go back to making food, go back to like the day-to-day things that that are totally disrupted by war. Like war, this conversation that is that is usually had between like the, the handfuls of people in power and then draws everybody else into their conflict. Like that space has been occupied right. by this one God in power yes. and now everyone can just stop it. Yeah. But I like the idea that 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 it's because there is some like true there is some true justice, but I think it could happen even without true justice. Mm-hmm. I don't know. 
Your question about universality has got me thinking because like, I, I get what you're saying about concern, about if, if everyone would just do things my way. <laughs> the world we can all get along. I but I think deep in my heart of hearts, like that really is kind of what I hope for, like some version of that. And so then I'm trying to think about how I feel about that. That's what's in my heart of hearts. But I really do sort of like, I think at the core of my faith anyway, is the belief that eventually at some point God does sort of re-enter into history and make possible a peace that endures. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I, mo- I mostly think about fr- that from within my own faith perspective and it would be a piece for, for other folks, you know, as well. But, but there is sort of a conquesting mentality there that's like, my God's going to make this all thing, whole thing work out for you. But I still like, I still like the image. I still, I still want to, I want to hold on. And to I don't want to like, look, I think, I think that you also could critique my question with like, it's it's a it's a faith claim. Like if you believe <laughs> if you believe that this God is like the God, then then yes, that is mm-hmm. that is certainly a better vision than the God is going to bring peace for some people but not other people. I think it's so funny because even though this is a text in the Hebrew Bible, I just I think that my experience in the world has been outside of those things enough where like yeah. people are praying for your salvation or people are yeah, you know yeah. like that I am, might be a little hypersensitive to, I don't know, the way that works in the world. But I, but I know that it's, it, it can come, it, it, it comes from a real, a real faith claim. I think it's important to keep that in mind and what, what our, what effect our claims have on other, on other folks. I think that's always important. Okay, I know we need to move on. I have one last question. Do you think it's strange that in this sort of universal vision there are still separate nations. I had not paid any attention to that whatsoever. And in light of what we were just saying, I, I kind of think it offers some relief to the question that we were just asking because it recognizes that even though now we all get along, it has not simply been a homogenization yeah. that we have all been absorbed into one thing, but it's yeah. we can still have our different identities and our different places and our different commitments, maybe. But because we now know how to live together and we have an arbiter of things yeah. that is possible for us to be in peace. I like that. I like that a lot. What were you thinking about that? I mean, nothing sophisticated. <laughs> nothing sophisticated, really. Just it's, it's more of maybe a reflection of myself that when I, when I think about what, is, what, are universal, what do universal visions mean yeah. It does, in my mind, sort of go to this extreme that's like soup, like you know, yeah. like indistinguishable, whatever. And and you're you're exactly right. It's nice to have a little bit of a midpoint here. Like, no, it's not indistinguishable. There are separate peoples and there are separate nations, and there is with with them all sort of orienting towards one arbiter. Yeah, there's a possibility that they don't need to get all into power conflicts. Yeah. This is not usually how I start reading Isaiah, Bobby. Like these are interesting texts to pull. Yeah. And they're out of chronological order. Like normally these texts have nothing whatsoever to do with each other, which raises Mm -hmm. the question, like what do these texts have to do with each other? But they do kind of, like they're an interesting pairing of texts, both from the same biblical prophet or at least from the same biblical book, but 
offering us kind of different different things. Oh, that's a whole other question. What do these texts have to do with each other? <laughs> I, don't know. I don't know the answer <laughs> to that question. Oh, I don't know the yeah. answer to that question. Here's my attempt to answer that question by way of also responding to what I think this text might have to do with today. Great. In the first part of this text, in the Isaiah 36 and 37, we see the way that military powers operate, which is through shocking force, through the manipulation of language, the manipulation of, of theology and ideology. And I mean, it's really powerful. And the Assyrians do that really well in this text. And they come against Israel and leave Israel quaking in its boots. And, you know, we can see how that continues to happen in our own world in various ways. The, the line about the, there's a new, there's a children waiting to be born, but there's no energy to bring them forth. I don't, I hadn't really thought too much about that line before we started talking, but now I'm really lingering on that. And the idea that a different world is possible, but people are so freaking exhausted because there's so many powerful people manipulating military power and language and and theology and ideology to wear us out and that we just can't do it anymore. And for me, that just, I mean, that just speaks to this world that we live in and how exhausting it is. I can never quite tell if it's just because I keep getting older or if the world really is more exhausting than it used to be, but it has really felt wearing to me lately. And what the Isaiah 2 text offers to me is like, the world does not have to be that way. It would be possible that we could all learn learn to live together in ways where we could still be ourselves, we could still be our nations, but if we can learn to live together and recognize that the Torah is a way of conducting ourselves with one another in which we can seek the common good instead of to seek power instead of trying to manipulate one another, we can grow food together. Like there is that possibility. It just, it feels so hopeful to me. Mm. I don't quite know where it touches the ground. Like I think for me right now, like, and even Isaiah himself in verse two, in the days to come, there's like a vague gesture toward like, at some future moment, this is possible. But even just that, there is a future moment in which this is possible. I feel like that's that's some strength for the living of the day. Maybe that's some strength for continuing to go through the birth process that brings new life into being. And it might not be today and it might not be tomorrow, but there's a hope that's out there that the world can someday can someday be different. Mm, I love that, Bobby. There was so much in there that really that really moved me. I was like jotting down notes in the margin of my uh, of my Tanakh while you were talking and I, I don't know if I I don't know if I have a separate thought to contribute, although I want to build up on yours a little bit, I think. Yeah. I'm really moved by the idea that we we exhaust ourselves with nonsense. Like yeah. <laughs> yes, there is really there well is said. the birth of of other things that is possible, but I mean I think we all have have seen in our own, I, maybe I shouldn't assume what other people have seen, but sometimes we exhaust ourselves with nonsense. And sometimes, you know, politicians or the media seem to be intentionally yes. taking us on this winding path, I think quite specifically to distract us from 
from other things or to make us wonder what we should be paying attention or shouldn't be paying attention to. And it really does feel like this, you know, at this moment in time, I don't feel like we're, we're in a place where we can just say, oh, well, we're just not going to worry about who's in power then because right. <laughs> we have to worry about who's in power. But to imagine a world where everyone can at least agree on this like final divine arbiter, mm-hmm. what kind of space that would open up for for like the stuff, for the real things, for the real birth. Not that it's right. going to take, it's not like we're going to all lay in the fields and have nothing to do. Like there's, there's still very much to do, but it would, yeah. but it would be the real stuff instead of just chasing our tails, which is yeah. what so much of daily life can, can feel like. Yeah. That is a, that is a hopeful vision. I like that vision a lot. And can you imagine if all of the, resources and energy and innovation that currently goes into creating weapons of war mm-hmm. went into figuring out ways to grow food and like make life possible for people. Like that's what this second Isaiah two passage has in mind. And just the amount of waste in our world, trying to figure out ways to kill each other and dominate right. each other. Right. Yes. I think that's what this text is actually saying is all of that material and time and energy and money could help sustain people's lives. Right. Mm. Good stuff, Isaiah. Isaiah. Okay, so our next regularly scheduled conversation is the book of Habakkuk. (laughs) Yeah, it is. Wow, that's like kind of off the beaten path a little bit. It is, and it's also the first Sunday of Advent in the Christian tradition, so... Trying to read Habakkuk, not only to read Habakkuk, but also to Habakkuk read it Habakkuk and Advent. Interesting challenge. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Fantastic. Well, I hope y'all will come back and join us for that conversation. Thanks, Bobby. Have a good week. Thanks, you too. I'll see you next time. Okay. Bye. Bye. Thanks for joining us for this week's episode of Bible Worm. If you've enjoyed this free podcast, we hope you'll help us keep it going by joining our Patreon for as little as $4 per month. You can also sign up for other goodies like early access, video lectures, weekly liturgies, and more. Visit patreon.com slash Podcast for details. Bible Worm is produced by Bobby Williamson and edited by Joel and Laura Becker. Our theme song is sung by Colin Bagney, and our theme music is The World at Large by Dano Songs. Many thanks to all our Patreon supporters for helping make this podcast possible. A special thank you to our newest supporter, Sharon. We don't know who you are or where you are, but we're grateful. I hope you'll learn with us again next week when we will read from each of the three chapters of the book of Habakkuk. Until then, keep on digging.